Welcome to Upward Dogology, where I retrain your brain and introduce you to the world of cognitive behavioral therapy for dogs over the age of six months. This episode is stimulated by a scientific study on the natural behavior of dogs to chew sticks. The scientists discussed if this action proves cognitive abilities because the stick could be perceived as a tool, which the dogs maneuver with their paws to achieve a predetermined goal of providing oral hygiene. If so, this common behavior is proof of cognitive skills. So the article went on, uh, the, the scientists and the, the people who wrote it, uh, that they're amazed that everyday actions of dogs can show signs of cognition. What is interesting is that they took a behavior that is considered good, unless you don't like stick remnants all over your house, but the actual act of chewing the stick is considered good or common dog behavior. But what if we viewed unwanted behavior as simply dogs displaying cognitive skills? What if we change our mindset to view them as a result of dogs gaining cognitive skills? Then it makes sense we would need to advance to harnessing these skills to effectively address the unwanted behaviors caused by this. By continuously forcing methods grounded in operant conditioning, such as positive reinforcement training or balance training, we are suppressing, not harnessing, these skills. In this episode, I talk about a few different studies which prove cognitive skills and how these relate to our everyday life and to addressing unwanted behaviors stimulated by cognitive abilities. Hello, I'm Billy Groom, your host and successful dogologist for three decades. I've been studying dog behavior, yes, for three decades. So when I saw this study, I found it interesting because it's it's my life just to, to study everyday behavior of dogs. Scientific studies on canine cognition to prove that dogs have cognitive abilities is all the rage right now. What does this mean in the real world? What is the correlation of these pieces of knowledge to our everyday life? How can we use them? Why is there such a disconnect between these studies and dog behavior in the real world? So I'm going to talk about three or four, they kind of start meshing at the end, but three or four different studies or tests, uh, scientific studies on dog cognition, and then talk about the real life problems that these skills actually create to show how we need to use a method grounded in CBT to effectively work with dogs displaying cognitive skills. So the first study is on the ability for dogs to learn that an action has a result. And I'm not referring in this example to something like sitting, which they, you know, they put their bum on the floor and they get a treat, but more so ones which involve a process and dexterity, a, a common canine enrichment exercise where the dog learns, for example, that by rolling a ball, a treat comes out. Or they watch the handler roll the ball and learn that way, and then they do it. Actually, this is similar to the same as the one with the stick, where they learn that the act of chewing the stick makes their gums feel better. They balance the stick in their paws, and that results in it being firm enough to chew on it. So they're learning how to use or maneuver an object to achieve their goal. So the real-life problem is your dog watches you push the top of the baby gate or slide back the lever on the crate, and magically it opens. Yep. They learn to do this, and a common response is to reinforce these objects. That can technically solve the problem, and there are tons of devices created to help with this, but by doing this, we are suppressing this skill, and ultimately, many times, it pisses dogs off more, and they will find a different way to achieve their goal, which 
might become physically harmful to them, or they will just be pissy in other areas or other times. In other words, they just become more defiant, similar to children. So the second study is on object permanence, and I talked about this in two episodes ago. So uh, I'll just go through this quickly. So object permanence would be to show that a dog uh, can tell that an object is somewhere even though the dog can't see it. So you could place a treat in a bowl and show the dog the treats in the bowl and then take the bowl behind a curtain, remove the treat and return the bowl to the dog, resulting in the dog going behind the curtain to find the treat. The real life problem is that dogs know where people hide a ball in an attempt to end playtime causing the dog to jump and bark to force the ball out of hiding to or to jump either at the ca- cabinet that the ball is in or on the person. A common solution might be to throw a treat down the hall and hide the ball. This would be distraction training. Or turn our backs when the dog jumps. And that's more of a positive correction. Tell the dog no when the dog jumps or barks in our face. And that's negative reinforcement. Not hugely terrible, but just human nature. Or give a dog a treat to get the dog to lay down uh, on their bed or on a place that they want them to, or or like a chew, something to chew, and that's positive reinforcement. And these are often effective with puppies, but they tend to fall short with dogs because the dog knows where the ball is because of object permanence. The third one is emotions or memory. So there are tests which use uh, repetition to determine a dog's ability to recognize and remember people and places or other factors, then this can continue on to study whether these factors instill fear or happiness based on repetition of seeing them. So the real-life problem is that dogs with a checkered past often have preconceived perceptions as to how they need to act to stay safe or achieve their goal when these factors occur. And this can lead to leash reactivity, growling, biting, fear peeing, and other reactions when they feel um, happy or fearful as examples. So happy, they could just be jumping up on people and they realize jumping up gets them padded. Common solutions are to use a high-value treat and patience to encourage the dog to be comfortable with a factor that might be causing the emotion of fear. That's positive reinforcement training or counter-conditioning. You could include desensitization in with that or associative training. So they associate the negative factor with the positive treat. And these methods can be effective, but they often take a long time and they require a lot of patience and repetition, leading to dogs getting surrendered or returned because people get frustrated. These dogs know how they feel and know the reaction which has achieved their goal. So if they're lunging and barking to keep dogs at bay and it continues to work, they're going to continue to do that. They do not see a reason to change their behavior. The inability for methods to change perception leads to avoidance, which has somehow become an accepted training method for positive reinforcement trainers. Yet avoiding these factors is not good and can lead to heightened frustration. That's also distraction. So if you distract the dog from watching what is bothering them, they're never going to get over it. They have to have a calm brain and a mindset, and we have to allow them to focus on it And this is particularly why upward dogology, grounded in cognitive behavioral therapy, is incredibly successful for rehabilitating anxiety and aggression. Because CBT acknowledges the behavior that it is a result of a preconceived thought pattern that leads to that behavior. So we're actually addressing the reason for the thought pattern, the reason why the dog feels that they need to do that behavior 
based on that emotion or memory. Another fourth study is, it's called a few different things, but object differentiation is probably the easiest. This is when, actually a lot of um, canine enrichment people do this, but they teach dogs words to define different objects, like a ball or a rope toy or a stuffy. And then when they give the command to get the object, the dog chooses the correct object and gets a reward, commonly a treat. Uh, People actually do this every day. They're just seen as tricks, but it depends on the reason why they're doing them. Sometimes it's called canine enrichment. Dogs know when you put on your walking shoes versus your going to work shoes. And this is where the real life problem comes in with object differentiation. And they may become hyper if they determine they are going on the walk or defiant when they know they are not. They learn your routine and decide their behavior based on that. So for those who have listened to the previous episodes, this is when I was talking about the sit action being a routine, that when the dog does this automatically to achieve a goal, people are so pleased and impressed, when actually it's an indication that we need to advance from standard methods to cognitive behavioral therapy, because you don't necessarily want your dog deciding the behavior or the routine based on object differentiation. Common solutions when taking the dog for a walk would be uh, when you're actually taking the dog for a walk and he's kind of getting hyper. You might attempt to make a place for the dog to sit when getting prepared for the walk. This is commonly called placement training. Dogs often readily do this, even on their own without direction, when they get that cue from the object that they're going. But the problem is that's not a useful method because it's the dog is doing that on their own because they know they're actually going. So it's not transferable. And the problem is when they're actually not going. So if the people want to put those shoes on, but don't actually want to take the dog, it can get a little tricky. And it leads to crating the dog when they actually are leaving and not taking the dog. And that can start to piss a dog off. And it's also technically avoidance. It's just putting the dog in the crate. You're not using the cognitive side of the brain. You're not including the dog into the process. So they're recognizing that you know they want to go, but that you have calm manageability. You're just putting them in a, a place or in a crate. And again, there's nothing wrong with crating. It's just not teaching the dog the expected behavior. And again, it can cause them to rebel. They know what the object means, and they will decide the course of action. This routine, such as going to a place, is commonly non-transferable to other situations, making it limiting. And it is often difficult for people to change that action if they decide to not go for a walk. Basically, again, the dog decided the routine and therefore will choose not to change it. So I'm now going to combine all these cognitive skills into a common problem. Let's say your dog is an adolescent dog and is overall quite well-trained, stable, fun, no real problems, can be left alone free in the home when you go to work, uh, you know, five days a week. Maybe you go from eight till one, you come home, go for a lunch walk with your dog or let him out to the yard and then go back to work. And then you come home after work and you go for a walk and then you hang out at home. This routine changes one evening when you decide to go out during the week, which is really uncommon. So you leave. You come home and your dog has pulled the garbage from the kitchen garbage container and has pulled your underwear from the laundry basket and has chewed everything. We know he knows right from wrong. So we know he knows this is wrong because you did your proper puppy training, you know, positive reinforcement training and, you know, maybe some forms of positive correction and he's a good dog. 
So he did this because he is pissed off that you left. Cognitive studies, along with simply being dog lovers, we know that these dogs have emotions. He also knows the routine you should be following, because we know that from dogs knowing routines, and that when you put on your to-go-out shoes or picked up your purse, that you were going without him because of object differentiation. That's when he got pissy. So you use your placement routine to stop that behavior, but it didn't change his perception. It just changed the behavior, which fooled you. The stick study allows us to know that dogs can determine a behavior that achieves their goal. So he decided to show you that he was pissy by destroying things. We know because of object permanence that he knows where the garbage is and where your underwear are. And he has seen you put them there because of the ability to understand that tasks, when they're performed as actions, have results. And he has watched you open the garbage with the foot lever. And he's watched you flip the lid off your laundry basket. He's simply chosen to never do that. But now that he's pissed off, he's using those cognitive skills to achieve his goal. When you arrive home, he may book it into his crate, which he never goes into except at night. Or maybe he comes up to get padded, and then as you head to the kitchen, he books it, which is weird. Or he simply doesn't come up to get padded. Or maybe he doesn't show any indication at all, but he could care less that you're mad. The point is, he remembers doing it because he did it intentionally. You could look on your Nest or other recording device. There's a good chance he did this right after you left. Can he remember doing that? Yeah, you bet he can. Professionals claim these dogs do not remember, but my clients... Hundreds of clients a year know their dog, knew it was wrong to do that, and knew when they came home that they remembered doing it because of some of these actions that they do. Puppies don't remember because they don't always know right from wrong, and they don't have strong cognitive skills. Dogs who do it out of anxiety or fear, or perhaps they are new to a home, they're still learning. And when they're doing it out of anxiety or fear, they may or may not remember, but it's done for a totally different reason, and in which case we could use positive reinforcement training to teach expected behavior or cognitive behavioral therapy to address the anxiety or the fear, but that's not the same as this dog. This dog is doing it because he has the ability to decide that you shouldn't have gone and what he's going to do about that. This behavior was 100% a result of having cognitive skills. We need to use cognitive behavioral therapy to change perception and prevent unwanted behavior so that the next time you leave in the evening, you have the skills to apply prior to leaving that change the dog's perception and prevent the unwanted behavior. They literally choose to not do that behavior. That's cognitive behavioral therapy. So how do you know if your dog is thinking cognitively? Well, hopefully this episode provides some insight into that. As well, the episodes prior to this one and the four-part mini-series at the beginning of this podcast provide some insight into dog behavior and changes the way you view your dog. So how do you know if your trainer or behaviorist is using methods grounded in operant conditioning or cognitive behavioral therapy? Well, circulating in the dog world is the notion that all trainers must be able to answer the question, what do you do when a dog does an unwanted behavior? If your trainer can answer that question, they are working under the operant conditioning umbrella or perhaps the positive reinforcement training side of it only. I never have to answer that question, simply because I cannot. Cognitive behavioral therapy does not work on that platform. 
When we cannot achieve our goal, we go back and build the skills in the platform. Operant conditioning relies on reactive reinforcements. Cognitive behavioral therapy relies on proactive prevention. Many clients have told me that their vet and their trainer or a vet tech has told them there is nothing they can do and dogs don't remember. They want you to believe this because they are confined to positive reinforcement training and perhaps balance training methods like positive correction or positive punishment. But those cannot proactively prevent behavior. They simply cannot just because of the platform and how operant conditioning works. I heard a podcast the other day where this trainer was talking about proactive prevention and I was thinking, great, this is great. We're going in the right direction. She suggested uh, to prevent a dog from jumping up like a happy, silly, fun dog that comes running up to greet you by throwing treats on the floor to prevent the jumping or putting a dog behind a gate to prevent counter surfing. Okay, those are preventing, but you're not using cognitive behavioral therapy to do that. And having said that, she wasn't claiming it to be grounded in cognitive behavioral therapy. I think she was just making sure that everyone knew that she was not having any negative reaction. But preventing by using gates or by throwing treats on a floor is, it's okay, but it's really not addressing the problem unless the dog's a puppy. It is impossible to remain under the operant conditioning umbrella and apply proactive prevention as a methodology. It's just simply impossible. Relying on operant conditioning to address anxiety and aggression is sometimes effective. But if the reason for the aggression or anxiety is grounded in preconceived thought patterns, commonly stemming from an experience, which simply could be that the dog learned that barking and lunging keeps people or dogs at bay, we need to change that thought pattern and operant conditioning simply does not work on that platform. Just because something is different doesn't make it wrong. In fact, it makes it exactly what scientists are trying to discover. Scientists and and veterinarians want a scientifically proven, evidence-based, hands-on formula that is non-aversive and effectively addresses behaviors that they are now realizing are stemming from cognitive abilities. By continuing to blame people and adopters in particular for not having enough patients or blaming trainers for being unqualified. They are not admitting the problem lies within the method. A trainer can only be as good as their method. Confining trainers to the force-free rules leave these trainers feeling like they have not satisfied their clients and their clients feel defeated and as though they have no choice but to surrender or euthanize. Trainers know they are failing to meet the needs of their clients. However, professionally, they feel obligated to remain in the positive reinforcement training umbrella, but they fear that they're going to be shunned by others if they move from that umbrella, because at this point, the force-free movement is preventing them from doing that because they feel the only other option is negative or aversive methods. The force-free movement is preventing exactly what scientists and veterinarians are wanting to discover. My goal is not to increase my client base. My business has been successful for three decades. My goal is to spread awareness to save dogs' lives. This needs to start with the influential people and organizations accepting upward dogology into mainstream dog rearing. In turn, trainers and behaviorists can incorporate CBT into their profession. Dog lovers of all skill level can easily maneuver through the adolescent stage, and rescuers can effectively integrate dogs with checkered paths into our urban world. Thanks to Open Strum, Daniel Burjo, and the Jeff Murdoch Band for the music. 
please contact me at billy at upwarddogology.com with any feedback or questions. If you like these episodes, please share and leave a rating or review. You can find more information at www.upwarddogology.com and please follow Upward Dogology on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and on LinkedIn. I am Billy Groom. Enjoy your learning journey.